Well, this is it. Here we go with another great edition of the Inside EMS podcast. I am your host, Chris Sabalero, and this episode of Inside EMS is sponsored by Echo. Core stethoscope technology by Echo helps EMS providers make confident split-second decisions in the most challenging environments by enhancing stethoscope sounds. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O-Health.com. And here's a man, the myth, the legend, my good friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? Oh, not much, man. Um, looking forward to my shooting trip in Colorado this weekend. Uh, if if I can go. Uh, my neck doesn't uh, doesn't want to cooperate with a whole lot of things lately, but hopefully we'll... we'll uh, the neurosurgeon will be able to to fix things. I'm reaching All that right. part in the service life, Chris, where where parts start failing. Man, <laughs> you are too young to be this old, Kelly. So you are you do have a pinched nerve, herniated disc. Is yeah, the I've got a got a herniated disc at C four and yeah C four and C five. Uh, there's there's some some herniation and pressing on my my uh, left anterior. Uh, section of my spinal cord and it is excruciating i've got new levels of of 10 on the pain scale i've, I've got a new a new 10 it's no longer the kidney stone yeah i'm not going to tell you it, it it's let's just say that that the the medications i'm taking um uh resulted in some some sequelae some side effects that are turned out to be my new 10 on the pain scale and it had nothing to do with my arm interesting interesting uh, and, and leave it at that oh yeah i don't think i want to go any deeper than that not, no pun intended but um <laughs> you know one of the things that uh, i would do for you i think if i was going to treat you as a paramedic and i think this is a good kind of test if we use you mm -hmm. as a case study which i know that you do a lot of case studies uh, you know i'd lay you down find a position of comfort or maybe sit you up yeah you 25 down is, is not yeah. a, not an option give you 25 milligrams of morphine and work the code <laughs> well i don't know if you work the code that's that's interestingly enough that 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 uh plays into our topic this week uh is uh one of the things that uh subject to ems dogma is is the topic of pain relief uh, i don't know if i can handle 25 milligrams of morphine although i suspect that i can i have a high pain threshold and and apparently from the few times i've experienced it a pretty high tolerance for or pain medications. They do a good job to control my pain, but I usually don't have the, uh, I haven't experienced the euphoria or the, the sleepiness and lethargy or, or any of that sort of thing, or even hypotension of any kind. They just, uh, they, they take care of my pain, but they don't do much else to me. Yeah. And li like you said, I think that there's a lot of things that happen inside EMS that we are not very, uh, um, we're not growing from right. And, yeah. and this show today comes from our very own editorial director, Greg Freese. And uh, we miss Greg being on the show. We know he listens often and Greg, you got to hurry up and get back here and visit with us. But he wrote a story on September 27th, 2021, and it makes no difference. We try to keep the show evergreen, right? We, we don't mm -hmm. like to use dates and we don't like to use stories that date us. But this is one that regardless of when you listen to this show, whether it's this Friday, whether it's three years from now, this is a topic that is evergreen and we need to be able to pay, uh, uh, you know, pay close attention to. And the name of the article is respond to, I can't breathe like it's a May day because it is. 
And Greg goes on to talk about a, the death of a firefighter trainee. His name was Peyton Morse. And he had a, um, he was in a training exercise in his full bunker gear. And he mentioned that he couldn't breathe and nobody really kind of paid attention and uh, it cost him. Right. And, but yeah. one of the things that Greg talks about, and I think what brings us to this topic is he admits that when he was in school learning his, you know, his skill, his craft as a paramedic, mm -hmm. he had the instructor who said that, you know, he said to the classmates, if a patient says, I can't breathe, what are they doing? And breathing. they're breathing. Exactly. And that is a disregard of the I can't breathe. One of the things that I've learned in my career, Kelly, is that when people say I can't breathe or when people say I'm going to die, you got to believe them. I had yes. a patient tell me one time, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And I said to them, nobody dies in my ambulance today. And I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. This guy coded on me in about seven minutes into the transport. And there was no indication of what was going on. And it caught me totally off guard. And then I mentioned this story to somebody who had more experience than me. And he's the one who said to me, when anyone says they're going to die, you better believe them. But as Greg brings to us, what I can't breathe really means is I can't breathe. Kelly, mm -hmm. we, we got to change this. Uh, you know, we got to change this paradigm. I was, I was taught the exact same thing. Uh, we repeated that whole mantra uh, 27 years ago in, in paramedic school. Uh, and and it's, a dangerous, it's a dangerous assumption to make. Um, what we what we should be teaching people is is when people say i can't breathe the only thing that that implies is that they can phonate and there is there is nothing obstructing their vocal cords that is all uh, well, i think it's can't. i think it's I, I don't think it's i can't breathe i think it's i'm having difficulty breathing that's, that's what right. they're well, saying that's what that's they're right. saying but but you see this you see this thing not only in in patients uh who are uh, suffering respiratory distress but you also see this in patients who have be, are being restrained um, and, and combative patients, uh, patients who, who are, uh, are um, under, uh, under arrest or in custody of law enforcement and, and they're being they tell people, I can't breathe. You have to pay attention to that because, God, we've had enough examples of people who have said, I can't breathe while in law enforcement custody uh, that died. You know, we have our George Floyds and our Eric Garners and a host of others. Um, and and one of the things that, that you know, potentially contributed to those those uh, de untimely deaths is this notion uh, among the arresting officers that if you say, I can't breathe, you can breathe because you're, you're doing that very thing. Um, we should treat it like a mayday. Uh, um it, it at the very least warrants further assessment to make sure that they actually can breathe and are doing so well. Uh, but you, that's a, never a statement you should blow off. Just like your old uh, uh, old mentor told you, if a patient ever tells you I'm going to die, you better take it seriously. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, Greg puts in his article, and, and uh, we'll put this in the show notes so everyone can read it, because this really has to be a new blueprint 
of how EMS providers approach their job. And one of the things that Greg says here is what I can't breathe really means. And we need to hear I can't breathe in a new way today, right now, not tomorrow, not next week. But one of the things that Greg does is he puts a little bit of relation to this to uh, Avpu, right? And he talks mm-hmm. about this from the signs of saying that one of the things that's going to happen is the brain is is very very sensitive and it's one of the earliest signs of hypoxia which is true and we don't think about this when we think about avpu we really look at it from a neurological standpoint and not from a respiratory standpoint but when we think about the pathophysiology of the brain how much it needs to be oxygenated and one Mm -hmm. of the things that you're going to see very first is a change in the alertness now that doesn't mean that they're going to go from alert and oriented times three to one what that means is they're going to be awake but they're going to be scared they're going to be awake they're going to be agitated they're going to be awake they're going to be combative going to be awake they're going to be confused and the very first thing kelly and you and i have been on scene with patients that have had difficulty breathing it's scary it's initially scaring until they get to a point of being agitated because they got to catch their breath and i think we need to look at this from that side to say oh my gosh, something's going on here and and we're not doing it. And, you know, you kind of mentioned pain management. I want to talk about this after the break uh, because I want to add this to it as well. But we got to change what we're doing as EMS Mm -hmm. providers. And I think Greg lays this out really well. Yes, yes, he does. And and, uh, the fact that a patient says, I can't breathe, uh, testifies to their anxiety uh, when they're suffering respiratory distress. And, and Chris, what do the textbooks tell us is one of the primary signs of hypoxia, anxiety. You know, they're, they're anxious, they're scared. Whenever you have a patient who repeatedly says, I can't breathe, you can uh, probably a better way of viewing it would be to, to think that this patient has three-word dyspnea. And that's all they can do. They can, they can muster three words, uh, the, the most important words, before they have to take a breath. Whenever you have a patient with a, with a respiratory pattern like that, where they can only communicate uh, in very short uh, phrases, uh, one, two, or three words before they have to take a breath, you need to take it seriously. And when those patients are, are uh, hypoxic, they're going to be anxious and combative, uh, anxious and uh, awake and anxious. Um, the big red flag is when these patients start to get lethargic. Uh, because you've, you've moved beyond a, a hypoxia uh, issue that you can fix with supplemental oxygenation. When the patient becomes lethargic, they're hypercapnic as well. And, and now you have an oxygenation and ventilation problem. And if you, if you hesitate or if you, you don't take that uh, seriously, uh, likely the next respiratory rate you're going to get is zero. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we need to start to think about is when people say, I can't breathe. And, you know, let's be honest here, Kelly. Mm-hmm. There are people who use the term, I can't breathe. Yeah. And they can breathe. But we're not the ones to, we're not the ones to say they're faking. We're the ones yeah. that have to assess it to make the determination, right? And one exactly. of the things that, and another another great uh, part of the article that Greg uh, outlines for us is what we need to determine when people say, I can't breathe. And he gave a couple of uh, examples. When you hear the words, I can't breathe, you need to hear, I need help now. 
or I'm scared I might die. Help me, please. And instead of hearing the term, I can't breathe, we need to be able to ensure that we're hearing it differently. You know, a lot of times we hear this, Kelly, when people are in custody, and you mentioned a couple of those high profile cases where people Mm -hmm. died after saying, I can't breathe. And it is our responsibility as EMS providers, when people are in custody to ensure that they are being taken care of as well. We we don't want to get in the way of the police doing their job, but sometimes we need to be able to say, Hey, get off his chest. He can't breathe. He's not going to be able to breathe. And you need to be able to bring some relation to that, but we need to be able to do our assessment and be the voice of reason in these high profile cases that you mentioned, Kelly EMS is in the crosshair because they were there and they didn't do anything. Uh, In the case in Minnesota, EMS providers did try to intervene to say uh, he's having some trouble, but we've got to be able to be the patient advocate, even if they're in custody. A lot of times we're not willing to cross that line as EMS providers, but what we're seeing now where EMS providers are being held negligent for homicide, we've got to step up and do our part here, man. Yeah, indeed. We, we have to step up and do our part and being a patient advocate is, is it, uh, you, you stated that, that sometimes it's not easy. Uh, but if it were easy, then they wouldn't need paramedics and EMTs to do it. Uh, when, when we step up and be an advocate for the patient, uh, the patient in custody, that's not anti-cop. It's not, uh, questioning their ability to do their jobs. Usually we're summoned to the scene for our medical expertise. And we need to be providing it in the realm of in the realm of patient advocacy, and and pointing out uh, things to the law enforcement officers that they may not appreciate, they may not know because they lack the training. And, and it's as simple as that. Yeah, and one of the things to think about here as well is we've got to be able to think about it from the standpoint of we know biology, we know pathophysiology, we understand exactly. management and treatment of disease process. One of the things that we've got to take into account is a lot of times the folks that may be in custody may be a little bit heavier, right? I mean, and we think about this from an obese, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. an obese patient that's handcuffed and laying on their chest. They may have difficulty breathing because they're heavy because now all of a sudden with their chest on the ground, they've got to be able to get full, um, you know, inspiration and expiration, Mm -hmm. and they may not be able to move their mass. If there's any, if there's any weight that's added to that, that just compounds that problem. So we've got to be able now to think about it, not only from a medical standpoint, but we've got to be able to think about it from a biological standpoint, Mm -hmm. from a pathophysic from a pathophysiological standpoint to say, Hey, wait a minute, this is a heavy guy. And if he's on his chest, he may have difficulty getting full inspiration, expiration, but Kelly, I want to go ahead and touch on Mm -hmm. the mentality of EMS providers, because you mentioned pain control. I want to kind of talk a little bit about this and, and put this all into a nutshell when we come back from our break. But before we do that, go ahead and hit us with the mid show read. Indeed, Chris. Core stethoscope technology by Echo with active noise cancellation and up to 40 times amplification helps CMS providers assess hard to hear, heart, lung, and other body sounds in even the loudest situations. Chris, I've been an EMS provider for 28 years. And honestly, before the Echo Core stethoscope, what I usually heard in the ambulance was road noise and power stroke diesel engine. 
Uh, I have a significant hearing deficit, and a lot of times, many of the higher frequency uh, sounds I need to hear with the stethoscope have been, quite frankly, guesswork until I got an amplified echo core stethoscope. It has expanded my assessment capabilities, and I thoroughly recommend it. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's ekohealth.com, and use code EMS1 for $20 off. All right. So Kelly, uh, you know, I, we kind of set up the next, you know, the next phase of this discussion where we talked about, um, you know, uh, you know, we're talking about the article that Greg wrote mm-hmm. about how he was taught in school that when somebody says I can't breathe, they are breathing. Um, what yeah. are they doing? They're breathing. Right. But I, I think that I want to move this conversation a little bit to the point of saying that this goes, you know, this, this, mentality of I can't breathe goes into the uh, mentality of the EMS provider because it's not necessarily mm-hmm. just the I can't breathe it's I'm in pain I need pain management yeah and uh, I need pain meds and we think that they're drug seekers we don't give them pain meds or when they try to direct care with I can't breathe we know that they're breathing and we kind of play that off I think that EMS providers some EMS providers do their business with ego more than they do their business with compassion. You know Mm -hmm. what? I I don't care that somebody is looking for pain medications because they may be drug seeking. If they tell me that they're in pain, how am I to say that they're not in pain just because they have track marks in their arm? You know, a lot of times the people who are drug seekers because of heroin use, they are in pain because they need Mm -hmm. to get their next fix, right? Yeah. You know, I've been in pain before and I've had people question me to say, uh, you know, what's your pain? Well, I'm at a seven on a 10 scale and they've not given me pain medication. I suffer from cluster headaches, which is a form of migraine headache, which comes in a cluster, usually one time a year for six weeks. I'll get them, you know, I'll get it for six weeks a year and I'll get three to four migraine headaches a day for six weeks. Boom. And Mm. then they're gone. Right. But the medications that they have, you know, out there, I can't take four times a day. And now I need to get some type of narcotic. And I've had paramedics tell me, I'm not going to give you pain medications because I don't think it's severe enough. Well, what right yeah. did they have to tell me that? What right do we have as providers to discredit the people who are talking to us to say that I'm not going to treat you? It's just spiteful is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. We're using our experience to say, I'm not going to do it. And I think yeah. that's wrong. Indeed. And, and my mantra has always been in regards to pain management. Uh, I'd rather be a chump than a prick. Uh, I would rather uh, be taken in by someone with a good story who that's, may or that's, may not. Hang on. That's your mantra? <laughs> that's my mantra when it comes to pain okay. medication. Okay, and I'll okay. explain it because, okay. you know, I'm not worried about a seeker uh, giving me a good story and, and, and getting some fentanyl. Uh, I, I don't care uh, because there's always a possibility that their story is legit or my assessment skills are, are, are not up to par and I, I know didn't find a painful condition that would uh, confirm my, my diagnosis. Um, I'd much rather be a chump than a prick. I would rather err on the side of giving the patient analgesia as appropriate uh, rather than withhold it uh, unnecessarily in someone who really needs pain medication. Uh, there's data out there to show that 
that uh, liberal use of pain medications by EMS providers necessarily don't uh, don't um, result in in more increased uh, uh, or more frequent uh, calls for pain management uh, by those patients. Uh, the other thing is, is, is even if the patient is addicted and, uh, and dependent upon pain medications, the, uh, and, and quite frankly seeking, you know, Hey man, I'm, I'm a heroin addict and, and I'm out of my, uh, I haven't scored a fix and I'm hurting right now. Uh, they are legitimately hurting and, uh, the amount of, of fentanyl or whatever analgesic we carry that we would give them for, for pain relief is, is not going to get them high. <laughs> They're not going to get a high. If you're a heroin addict and I give you a hundred mics of fentanyl, I'm not going to get you high. Uh, what I might do though is help ease some of the withdrawal symptoms. And, and that's the point. We often apply this template uh, to things like pain management uh, that uh, if it doesn't hurt me to look at, uh, I'm not going to give you any pain uh, pain meds for it. And and there are reams of, of papers and studies that show that many uh, patients in, in severe pain are under-medicated by EMS and by the emergency department staff, most especially women and minorities. Women uh, and people of, of black and brown color do not get pain medications, and that's a, that's a shame. So, Kelly, I want to ask this question. How did we get here in EMS? I mean, how did we get to the point of using our skill, using our knowledge, using our ability, using our experience to make the determination to say, you know what, I'm just not treating you because I don't think it's necessary. I mean, when we're taught that we need to be able to treat the patient, not the monitor, Aren't we supposed to treat the patient when they say I'm in pain? Aren't we supposed to treat the patient when they say I can't breathe? Aren't we supposed to treat the patient when they say I think I'm going to die? How did we get here to a point of flipping the coin to say, oh, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't? I think part of it is, uh, or, or at its root, is lack of education. You know, we think we are well-versed and, and well-educated and trained in the realm of patient assessment and that we can spot painful conditions. But what we have uh, is often just enough knowledge uh, to uh, cause the patient to undo harm. Uh, and, and pain management is one of those things. We tend to focus on, on objective signs. Uh, and pain, by its very nature, is a subjective complaint. Unlike the Commission on... Uh, on accreditation of hospitals uh, who, who declared pain the, the fifth vital sign. Uh, vital signs by their very nature are, are objective and quantifiable, and you cannot do that with pain. It's different for every person. Uh, so a lot of that is pushback against that sort of thing. But the thing is, is, is we incompletely or inexpertly assess people and determine from the measurable things that we have seen that a patient is not in pain. But a chronic pain patient will often lack most of those physical signs. We look at a patient and go, man, your blood pressure is not even up. Your, your heart rate's not elevated. You're not squirming on the stretcher. You're not crying. Uh, you're not, you don't wince when I palpate the area. Uh, or there is no area to palpate. It's, it's vague, uh, un, undifferentiated pain. I'm not giving you analgesia for that. When people who have chronic pain have breakthrough, they don't have that sympathetic nervous system response uh, like someone with acute pain will have. Uh, they don't have the, the diaphoresis, the tachycardia, the spike in blood pressure. 
Um, so you look at it at the patient, say, man, your vital signs are, are better than mine. I'm not giving you pain medication right now. They may, in fact, be suffering from pain that would leave you curled up in a fetal position, whimpering in the corner, but they've learned to deal with it. Um, so that sort of thing, that thinking that, that uh, you can find some objective findings of pain every single time is, is erroneous, and we need to abandon that as well. But, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. What other pieces of dogma persist in EMS that we still follow and, and to the patient's detriment? We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at EMS1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week. <laughs>